I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to Self Helpful. I'm your guide, Kevin Miller, and I curate the sea of new personal development messages to bring the most influential leaders onto this show. Join me as I question my guests to better understand their counsel so we can all integrate the wisdom into our lives because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. The Self-Helpful Podcast is presented by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping coaches. Visit Ziggler.com. Hello, self-helpful listeners. In this episode, how putting your needs first serves others best. This is part one on a series about boundaries. I spent most of my life with zero boundaries, thinking I was doing the world and everyone in it a favor. Instead, I found myself serving others with a bitter heart or just a worn out heart to the point where some of those closest to me actually told me to just go take care of myself so that I could take care of them better. I still grapple with the concept, however, a lot, and I need more help. I bet you might as well. So I invited Terry Cole to the show. She's our expert. She's a licensed psychotherapist, global relationship and empowerment expert, and the author of a new book, Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. The message in her book is the muse for our show together here. Terry reaches over 450,000 people weekly through her blog, her social media platform, and her popular podcast, The Terry Cole Show. Let's get into it. Terry, this topic of boundaries is one I have had knowledge of for quite a while and a little learning maybe, but your book came along at a time when I think I'm ready. Is that fair? So, yeah. so, so let's dive into it. I, I want to uh, figure out how to embrace it, really. I, I maybe even find peace with it. Uh, which I would assume is kind of at the core because for somebody who has, who's, if there's a spectrum of boundaries and I'm way down the line on the bottom end of it, there's gotta, it feels like I, I'm looking for some 
paradigm shift? Do you find that that's what's often needed? It's not just a gradual thing. Somebody needs a, a switch flipped. Yes, because you think, and I know you just this much, and still I know enough to know that you think by overgiving, being present, being Superman, being super dad, saying yes, yes, yes to all the things that is in your heart of hearts. Part of that is to be loving. Part of that is to show up. Part of that is to be a good man, to be a good person, to be a good partner, to be a good dad, all the things. And yet the most painful, I guess, for me in my own life, realization of what I was doing, because I was doing all the same things <laughs> that you're describing, was through um, a story I actually tell in the book, but I'll give you a precursor to it. Yeah. One of my sisters was, she always like just had more problems in her life than other ones of my sisters. I have three older sisters. And she was in a bad relationship with someone who was abusive and she was drinking alcoholically and this person was doing drugs and she was living in a house in the woods with no running water, like literally, actually, with someone who was physically abusive to her. So this was very, very distressing to me. And I was crying and talking to my husband, who I think Vic was probably just my boyfriend at the time, and talking to my therapist and finally being like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do? I was trying to throw money at it. I was talking to her. She would tell me what he was doing. I would cry hysterically. And my therapist was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I can't just do nothing. Yeah. And she was like, let me ask you something, Terry. What makes you think you know what your sister needs to learn in this lifetime? And I was like, I don't know. Bev, I think we can agree she doesn't need to learn it in a house with no running water with a crackhead who beats her. Do, I mean, can we agree that it doesn't have to be that way? And she was like, uh, no, because I'm not God. I don't know. And neither do you. But do you know what's really happening for you in this? And I was like, obviously not. <laughs> so maybe you could enlighten me. And she said, Terry, you've worked for years to create internal harmony and peace. You have a pretty harmonious life. Your sister's dumpster fire of a life is really messing with your peace. Yeah. And you really want it to stop. So whatever you need to do, you want her pain to end so your pain can end. Mm -hmm. And I was like, right, but is that like whatever? So my my thought though, Kev, I before this, I thought, I'm just like kind of Mother Teresa E. I'm just a lover like that. I'm just going to help all the people who need help. I'm just going to do the thing. From that moment forward, I was like, oh my God, I'm trying to control mm -hmm. the, my sister's outcome because her being in this dangerous situation is so distressing to me that I'm willing to do anything to end it, but it's not mine to end. So I was like, so what do I do? I didn't even know I had a choice. I thought I had to do what I was doing. Like I literally didn't even know there was another option. And she said, how about some boundaries? You don't have to listen to your sister talking about this abusive guy. You don't have to let her tell you all the crap that you already know. Yeah. So I talked to my sister and said, I totally love you. Here's the thing. I can't listen to this. It's too distressing. But if you ever really want to get out, I'm still your person. And like within nine months, maybe we talked twice in that period of time, she called me and was like, 
hello? <laughs> Are you still my person? Because I'm ready to get the hell out of here. And I was like, I'm literally getting in my car. She went, got sober, went back to school. But here's speaking to your point, Kevin, of like, yeah. you need a paradigm shift. You need to know what is on the other side of better boundaries that isn't on the other side of disordered boundaries. My sister got to be the hero of her own life. Instead of me centering, because this is what we do when we auto advice give, when we think we know, when we try to fix all the things, what are we really doing? Centering the other person's situation on ourselves as the solution, which was so painful <laughs> for me to like wrap my skull around. I was like, super not Mother Teresa, <laughs> if that's what's actually happening. But to see my sister thriving in her own life and not having me, because in my, my family of origin, I was the hero child, even though I was the youngest, I was the designated oldest, it's called, where even though you might be chronologically youngest, but you still I like acted as the oldest. And how nice to be let off the hook, let myself off the hook, a hook that I couldn't even have been on because yeah. I couldn't have fixed what was happening for my sister, you know? So. So um, let me, let me ask, and I'm going to say a couple things and, and try to preface it with, I'm going to say these things and know that I need to have grace for myself. Okay. Yep. So in, in trying to practice grace for myself, which is, is a continual process. What I heard, heard, or what I received a little bit from you saying, uh, or what you said there is some of my, or a lot of my efforts to be a caretaker and, and do everything, be the fixer, be Superman, super dad, all that kind of stuff is selfish. Cause I really just want, like you said, I want, in your case, I want your sister to feel better so that I feel better. It, it's self-focused where everybody just be at peace and happy. So I can be at peace. Cause if you're not, and then the next thing, and this came up a lot as I studied your book, Terry, uh, was the issue of responsibility mm -hmm. and that I take responsibility. So selfishness, I take responsibility in areas for, for people and things that I shouldn't. And I rob them. Your line is great. I wrote that down. Uh, they need to be the hero of their own life, not me. And I want to be the hero. That is a part of my mm -hmm. DNA. Mm -hmm. Which is the next point in realizing that it is so much my identity. That's who I am. That's who I have always been. When I was a professional cyclist with my teammates, I was the guy who took care of everything because mm -hmm. I had to. I had to do. And you said this somewhere in the book. I may have the page number written down somewhere that it was on one of the lists that your list just uh, nailed me most all of them. And, and I'll reference some of them, but the one of having to do more, I've got to know that I did more otherwise. And I'm, and it's almost like I'm trying, I'm not only reaching for the external approval, I'm looking for my internal approval. So even if somebody doesn't know, I'm not doing more to be altruistic. You know, this isn't some religious thing of do something, uh, you know, the scripture, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing and just give selflessly. That's not what I'm doing. I'm trying to gain my own approval. So am I, am I tracking pretty stereotypically here? I mean, yes, for someone who has disordered boundaries, but also is high functioning codependent, which is what my next book is going to be about, which, you know, I talk a little bit about in this book, but the way this, the, we're describing these disordered boundaries where we are 
auto-advice givers and over-functioning and over-giving and overly invested in. So if, if we were to break down, what does it mean, according to me, to be codependent? It's a lot of times, it's it's not the way we think. It's not necessarily the Melody Baby codependent no more. You have to be involved with an addict all about enabling under and over-functioning. Yeah, it can be that, but it's not just that. So codependency means you're overly invested in the feeling states, the outcomes, the decisions, the circumstances, the relationships of the people in your life to the detriment of your own internal peace. So that's the thing, because here's the thing, Kevin, you're a lover, I'm a lover, we love our people, we're involved, we, we, of course, we want them to have what they want, of course, we're invested in the happiness of our family and the people that we love. But when it is to the detriment of our own internal peace, like, I was invested in my, my sister's situation, to the detriment of me being able to enjoy my own life. I couldn't until I figured that out until I had the therapist who told me it wasn't mine to figure out, but I didn't understand that. So I think that what we're really talking about, a lot of the behavior you're describing is like overgiving, overfunctioning. But the thing that people don't understand about codependency is that at its core is disordered boundaries for sure, because we're constantly overstepping, but it's also a covert or an overt bid to control. Okay, let's go. Let's go there. And it's interesting. You're the second person, I think, second person in a row who has has a um, or real close on each other has a book and a platform primarily for women. Mm-hmm. I don't happen to be a woman, mm-hmm. and everything I hear you saying, I think men so desperately need and are so dramatically even more so unaware of. I mean, the whole word codependent is not a term that you're going to find any group of guys talking about. Nope. Uh, har- hardly any. And yet it's one of the primary labels that I accept because it is, I am dramatically have been codependent as the stereotypical, what do my kids call me? The alpha, you know, male to, or they have a different name, but just the, you know, the yeah. consummate heterosexual white American male guy, that's me. And mm-hmm. yet that's what I have been in my efforts to think I'm doing good. Think I'm being valiant. That's a word that I use a lot, valiant. And cause I, I have been really hurt by some of the relationships that I have, that I have hurt in my efforts. And I thought I was being a rock star. I thought I was being gladiator saving the world. And I actually hurt people in it. And that in and of itself is devastating. Mm -hmm. It's probably one of my primary hurts. Just Kevin's, Kevin's wounds is one of those is that here I was thinking I was Really, just that, being valiant, being the hero. And I actually yeah. hurt people. And that is so hard to accept. Yeah. And yet I think, go ahead. What I was going to say, though, is like for people who are sort of auto advice givers, who are always there with the the second someone needs something, you're like, I think you should do this. I did this in the past. I know people. I've got resources. Instead of auto fixing in your mind, the next time someone comes to you with anything, Learn to ask expansive questions. Okay. That's all you have to do, literally. It doesn't mean you're never going to give someone your opinion on something. But your job is to have faith 
that your children will figure it out for themselves. That your wife needs you to listen, doesn't need you to fix because it feels so depersonalizing. So if someone says, well, I'm in this situation, I don't know what to do. You can say, okay, but your gut instinct is good. So if you did know what to do, what do you think it would be? Take a guess. Um, what does your gut say? What are you, what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Um, which way are you leaning? Right? This, what are we conveying to others? When we ask expansive questions, we're saying, nobody knows better than you what you should do. I have faith that you'll figure it out or you won't. But the reality is it's your life to figure out. It's different with kids. Kids come to us because, you know, there can be sort of a mentorship element of parenting, even adult children. But with my kids, I will still always start with, what are you thinking? What does your gut say? Well, I, I have not done that well. Uh, I think my first step, Terry, has just been to, I don't even need the question asked to me. I can just overhear a conversation and, <laughs> you know, that there's a somebody, something, they heard something in the car and I'm out in the driveway trying to fix it. I wasn't asked. I was not expected. Yeah. Thank you for laughing. Uh, and so, and I've just had to just, just shut up, Kevin, don't do anything. Just sit there. And then it's been, it's, and this has been going on for a few years, uh, a wonder to watch and just, they took care of it. They took care of it. They didn't need me to, didn't want me to. I, one of my dear older daughters, uh, even at one point said she was sharing something and she said, dad, don't do it. Don't fix it. I don't need you to, I need to learn how to do this. So I'm just telling you, but please don't do it for me. And the amount of effort and wear and tear on my soul that I had been doing for so many years. Uh, and, and my wife's gone through a time as well of kind of breaking off from me in the, in her own growth and realizing how empowering it is for her not to rely on me. And yet I still, it still feels bad though, Terry, it still feels bad over here to not do anything, to know that there's a problem issue. I know I can take care of it right now and to not do it. Right. Let's really look at it. Okay. Let's look at it from a different point of view. Though, okay. Let's okay. look at it from the point of view of rather than bringing that, that spotlight on you. Yeah. Real love is bringing the spotlight on them. So it doesn't mean you have to do nothing. You can engage in saying, what are your thoughts? Right. You, you can, you can engage without having the answers. And I think that that's an ego thing that we have to like get to where it's like, can we, can you shine the spotlight on the, the strength of your kids? Cause he, here's what ends up happening with parents, right? When we, um, constantly jump in, especially when, you know, man, I raised teenagers with my son, with, with my husband, it's like, you know, kids just getting into, I, I married a widower. So these kids were like 12, 14, 16 when I came in. So they were so bad. So acting out just awful. I thought they were all going to be in jail. They're not, they're all upstanding dads have their own families, but I swear that was, that was 25 years ago. That there was definitely a period of time where I was like, wow, they're all going to be in jail. Um, but what would happen is my husband would be wanting to bail them out. Like, you know, we were paying for an apartment for one of our kids and then like th four months later, he comes and he's like, um, 
they're going to kick me out because I didn't pay the rent. And so I need seven grand and whatever. And my husband was like, I'm writing a check. And I ended up talking to him and saying, listen, when you continue to bail any of the kids out in this way, what you're saying to them is the kid is saying to you, I think I'm a loser. And you're saying, I agree. Mm -hmm. So is that the message you want to send? The bottom line is he got himself into this mess. He can get himself out, whatever that means. So I was like, well, you, we don't want to collude with this low self-esteem this kid is feeling. So when a parent is like, I'm so afraid you're going to fail, I'm going to do it for you. Yeah. The kid is like, oh my God, I, I am incapable. So there's something about letting kids learn on their own, which means there has to be some consequences for actions at some point. And when we're auto fixers, a lot of times we don't want anyone else having consequences. We just want it to all be okay. Does that make why, sense? Why, yeah, it does. But why? I mean, I look at that and you know, even in my own growing up, I was very independent. My parents let me do my own thing and I appreciate that. I learned, I grew I was strong. And yet, why is that not intuitively a part of my reaction with other people? Because it can be one of my peers, you know, one of, one of my guys, and he shares something in my inherent feeling. My natural feeling is to take some aspect of responsibility. Like, I need to help fix that. And I have to just step back and watch myself and go, no, no I, I, I don't have the ability to, the mm -hmm. to deal with it. And it's not my responsibility. There, he's a grown man. He can take care of it, but it's so interesting. It's a me, which brings back to, it feels like a me problem. Obviously it's a me problem. And, and I keep playing with the term, I don't know if it's fair. And again, I'm going to try to have grace, but it almost seems arrogant. Mm -hmm. Oh, it, it is. But here's the thing. It's not consciously. So that's exactly what I felt when I had this realization in my late twenties, where I was like, what? who the hell am I that I, I literally think I actually legitimately know what everyone else in the world should be doing. Like, yeah. I think I know that, which, but, but that isn't it. It's not a conscious thing. The truth is your heart's in the right place, but what you have to look at to be able to stop doing it is what is so distressing about allowing other people to have their feelings about, about supporting others in your life to be self-determined and sovereign. You have to know, like you have to let the chips fall where they may, especially when they're not your friggin' chips. Well, then you're back to the responsibility. Okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to shelf responsibility just for a second, because okay. you said something a minute ago, a baseline of, of, of boundaries issues is, you know, that we, we overstep our boundaries. We, we, go out there, we caretake and, and, uh, be codependent and whatnot. And you said, we take care of others, serve others to the detriment of our own internal peace. So mm -hmm. if I'm just me, okay, I'm just a guy. And let's say I, you know, wake up in a city and not all alone and I don't have the big family and married and whatever. It's just me. Mm -hmm. I'm single. Let's say I work for myself. Like I do now I've got, you know, just casual friendships. Uh, I, I I'm kind of good. I'm not, I'm not codependent. I'm not attached. I'm not having boundary issues. But the moment that I decide to get intimate or ingrained with somebody, whether it's a close friendship, whether it's a romantic interest, and then, you know, on and on kids or whatnot, by proxy, 
I tend to, and I'm asking you, I feel like the culture tends to expect that we are doing that for a benefit, obviously, but we're also doing it at that we're giving up our own, not peace, but we do to us. I mean, again, culturally, it seems like we do that. We, we expect that this is going to be give and take now. This is going to be compromise. This is going to be, I, I'm supposed to put others first. And now, and especially now, if we want to jump over into the religious realm, which is what I grew up in the Bible belt of the South, that mm-hmm. that's point. You're there and you serve others. Serving self is not, I, and I know, but that's, you know, that's a lot, that's a foundation of our, of our culture. You know, it's interesting, Terry, I had Tama Bryant on the show about a year, year and a half ago, who's now the president of the APA, the American Psychological Association. And her, one of her efforts I know was to bring spirituality into therapy because she said it is a bedrock just so just regardless of whether you you know what your beliefs are it spirituality is a bedrock of humanity so it should be a part of therapy i appreciated that and i think that's a great place to look at that we're from a religious aspect especially which is not spirituality but from religious to you know serve others put them first mm-hmm. and so your you know statement of uh, this perspective it, it's such a foundational 180 from this aspect it's by proxy kind of a boundaryless perspective that right but we we have to question though if friends i'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess money and numbers are fairly greek to me so i need a lot of guidance one of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager and i'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is a, an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they're hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. I live high up in the Rocky Mountains where the air is clean and fresh as possible, but then I step indoors and I'm breathing in untold amounts of toxins and allergens from paint and carpet and cleaning chemicals and pets and furniture and appliances and mold and so on. Studies show the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air anywhere you are. And in some places, it's a hundred times worse than that. Well, the solution is to get an air purifier and air doctor is just the best out there. It filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen and pet dander and dust mites and mold and even bacteria and viruses so your lungs don't have to try to do that. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com. You can use the promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks. 
exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get the special deal, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com. Use promo code Kevin. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Taking over someone else's problem is putting them first or is it just controlling them? It, it's not putting them first, right? It, it's it's in your life, it might feel that way, but it's you doing what you want in that situation. It's you asserting what you think should happen in that situation. It's a judgment call and real love, like being able to coexist with people that we love deeply is getting to know them intimately. And we do that by asking questions. Right. We do that by supporting them. Right. How many times, and you know this, because especially with, you know, this is a, an age old complaint between if we're going to say heterosexual men and women, where the woman wants to talk about something, the man, the moment she starts talking is like, why don't you do this? I think you could do that. I know somebody I like just fix, 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 fix. And it's so dehumanizing when you're on the receiving end of that. Like, I'm not a problem for you to fix. I used to get so mad when I was first with my husband because, you know, I had multiple careers before we even got together. I was already in my th 30s before we got married and he's 10 years older than me. And I, there was a part of me, I'd be so mad. I'd be like, do you actually think that you know what I should do more than even in, support me in my not knowing? You have to be able to hang with that uncomfortableness of me being upset, having total faith, I'm going to figure it out because it's my friggin' life and I, and I will. Now, that doesn't mean I never brainstorm with my husband. I never say, hey, what do you think about this? Of course we do. But it wasn't that. It was the auto advice giving. He was auto fixing. And this is, was obviously many years ago. But when I asked it now, he'll be very much like, are we brainstorming? Like, what are we doing? Are you seeking input or are you not? Like he knows. He's like, do you just need to vent? And the most helpful thing you can do as a guy who wants to be of service, who wants to be the hero, is to ask the people in your life, how can I best support you right now? What would be helpful? What would feel supportive? 
sometimes I'll, Vic will say, how, how can I best support you? And I'll be like, let's just make out or let's go for a ride or let's have a cup of tea or whatever, right? But if you ask that, what you're doing is you're respecting the sovereignty of the people in your life to be self-determined. You know, and I'm not talking about 15 year olds, right? I'm, I'm just, I'm talking about people who are already grown up. I just heard a bunch of guys, including myself, hear that. How can I best support you? And you said, let's make out. If that happened, that would that's a great place to start for a lot of guys. Now, the other thing, though, Terry, seriously, that, that I heard also in that, or, or, I, or I thought you got me thinking, stereotypical man, woman, she wants to talk about the issues, you know, and, and he's supposed to listen, not fix. On our side, our, on my, and I'll own it for me. I hadn't thought about it, but the tendency not to share, I don't want to come home and share the stuff is because I think one reason is I don't want somebody to offer a fix like that. And I'm not, and I'm, maybe I'm afraid of that, that they will. So I just don't talk. I just don't offer. And I wonder if that's, I'm going to stereotype a lot of men in that, that what would we be more prone to if we, if we felt safe in that, because like that, I'm not going to do that to another guy because I know their tendency is to want to fix. So I'm just not going to share it with you unless I'm specifically looking for a fix. Right. But I, I think you're at, that's really insightful. I think that that's very common if we're looking at cisgender men. Right. Um, but here's the thing. You can also say this is, this is becoming fluent in the language of boundaries hmm. is like becoming fluent in an actual language where if someone, if you say, hey, I'm in this situation. I would warn people, my, my auto advice giver friends, I would say, I'm actually not seeking input. I really just need to vent. So I don't need, I don't, I'm not looking for suggestions straight to their face. I'm not looking for suggestions. I could set them up to succeed or I can wait until they give the suggestion and then say it, but I'd rather set them up to succeed. What I'm really looking for is just a compassionate ear. That would be so helpful. Say what you need, and then you get what you need. Because what you're doing, though, Kev, is that you cut yourself off by not sharing what you grapple with, by feeling like that'll be a burden to someone else, or you don't want to reject their advice that you don't think is good. Because listen, let's be honest. How many people's advice do, do we actually value in the world? My, my not a lot. Me personally, yeah. it's a very small number, especially yeah. if it comes to my business. I'm specifically going to a person because they know about my business. I'm not asking everyone in the world what they think, because I don't care yeah. what they think. It's not helpful to me, you know? So I think that learning to ask for what you need, because when you don't, your relationships stay more surface, mm -hmm. because your struggle is also valuable. You figuring something out and being vulnerable to your wife, your kids, whomever, and, and listen, Kids are a different story, even adult kids. I have a tendency to keep, there, there's an, for my two cents on parenting adult children. There's tons of things I would talk to my friends about. I would never talk to my sons about, right? Sex with their father being one of them, but you know, many yeah. other things yeah. as well, where there's still more of a focus on them. What are they doing? How are the grandbabes? What's happening with the new job? Blah, blah, blah. So, and I'm not saying I never talk about myself. I do, but I don't expect there to be like a 50-50 thing like I would in a friendship. Because parenting, even when we move into the appropriate stage of parenting adult children, because that changes as well, 
we're still parents, right? But that doesn't mean we have the right to auto advice give or to weigh in or to be critical or to tell them you've got this great, better idea. The way they're doing it, you've got a better idea of doing it because that is so diminishing to other people. So I don't know, long way around the barn. Did I even answer your question? Yeah. yeah. And you've, you've got me back thinking about the aspect of responsibility, even with my adult kids, but with my, you know, with my wife, with my friends, business partner, whatever, to have something and, and to kind of go back to what you said to your sister. I'm thinking about that now again, of saying, man, I am here for you. I'm here for you. If you need help, I'm here for you. Not that I would say it out loud, but almost internally, I need to say, but it's not my responsibility. It's not my responsibility. And I can even say, I can even, there's probably a place to even say that. And, and maybe you, know, you did in essence to your sister that your life, your problems are not my responsibility, but I, I do care about you. I am here. Right. You specifically need help. What? Yes. But here's the thing. Okay. The person who needs to hear that it's not your responsibility it's is me. you, yeah. not them. My sister didn't think it was my responsibility. I was just do, playing out this dysfunctional boundary dance with her that I'd been playing out our entire lives until I learned to do better. Okay, talk to me then about talk to me about it from a self identity aspect, mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. for and this is not going to be everybody that's listening, yeah. um, but everybody maybe. Would you say that with with people who struggle with boundaries, which is everybody, but let's say on the higher end of the spectrum, that it has become, maybe it's always has been, but it has become, it has become a part of your self-identity. So now it's attached to you, kind of like, you know, the issue of, of beliefs. Our beliefs are dangerous when we have attached them to us. And it's not just mm -hmm. an authentic, unbiased out here belief, something that we think happens to, you know, make sense. It's something now we've attached to ourselves. So now we're going to fight beyond what is even uh, the, the realm of reason because it's attached. Mm -hmm. So now, because now we're talking about, and I'm trying to hit to the core of why I've known about this for a while, but I haven't walked it out well, Terry, of mm -hmm. boundaries that it's part of myself. My, I have to change my identity of, I am not Superman. I am not mm -hmm. God. Uh, I am not responsible for everyone. I'm not supposed to, how arrogant that is that for some reason, that word resonates with me. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it, helps, it helps stem the flow a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and I've got to detach myself from that. I've been doing it out of a kind of a gritting my teeth. I thought, I think maybe that's it. So I've been walking this out some Terry with mm -hmm. some you know, grit and willpower, which as we know is finite. Uh, those are finite things. Not with maybe, maybe I haven't achieved, I'm still working on the identity shift. Is that reasonable? Yeah, but here's the thing. It's, it doesn't have to be your identity. And, and I know it feels like it is, but we're really just talking about behavior because listen, the core of who you are, Kevin, isn't going to change the core of who I am. If you are a helper by nature, if you're a loving person, if you're an extrovert, if you are attuned to the feelings of others, highly sensitive person, empath, you're still all of those things. And so am I, right? I just learned to deepen the intimacy in my relationships by I'm still the person people come to, right? I just do it differently. I just, 
ask questions. I just don't do it to strangers anymore. Like it, right. you, literally I'd be indiscriminate. Could be anybody. My, from my hairstylist to my mailman, like I swear to God, I would be jumping into anybody's situation if they were in pain or needed help. Now we're talking about a behavior change and that what, what we want to look at is do you, is there a belief in you that self-abandoning in this service, quote unquote, for, for other relationships is a requirement to be a good partner, a good father. Because here's the thing with self-abandonment. Here, when you have kids, and you have a lot of kids, <laughs> when you have kids and they're younger, of course, in a healthy family, it is a child-focused system. And notice I didn't say child-obsessed. I just said child-focused because you chose to have kids. They're at the top of the rung of their needs matter. They need to go to school. They need to eat healthy food. They need to eat, right? Like dysfunctional families are like focused on the identified patient or the acting out person, right? Where the kids are over here, but then everyone's looking at like the active alcoholic or whatever it is. In healthy families, we are child focused without being child obsessed. So of course, are there ways that we, things that we don't do when we're raising little kids? Yeah. Is that self-abandonment? I don't think it is. I feel like there's an appropriate amount of self-sacrifice when you are raising small children and even teenage medium-sized children that once they're up and out, less of that needs to happen. That's not the type I'm talking about. I'm talking about self-abandonment, meaning you will always drop the thing that might be best for you if someone else needs something. You will always choose to, you know, sort of be last on your own list when it comes to getting your own needs met. Because if your need for peace, your need for harmony, your need for everyone else to have no pain is greater than any other need that you could have. That's what we have to look at. I would say to my therapy clients, right? Your need can't just be, I want no conflict, right? I'm like, there's other needs in there. That is, you just, you're, um, you're speaking to the videotape of my life uh, in a lot of ways here, the need to not be in pain, to not have conflict. And the, you know, as I think about that, the self-abandonment, I think Initially, early on with our growing family, I did it out of a, it, it was a little more joyful. It was a little more willing. Uh, and I thought, you know, this is, this is great. And it's probably, of course, feeding some of my own dysfunction. It was, mm-hmm. but I, but it was okay. Or I, or I thought it was okay. Or I was doing it willingly. And then as time went on, my behavior stayed the same, but it was with gritted teeth. And it was with some bitterness. And it finally took me to an end, which happened a number of years ago. But uh, realized, I, I realized the bitterness. And, and it got me to a point of where I am now able to look at things to a degree. I mean, again, I ebb and flow, Terry, of looking at where's my heart in it? Where's my heart in it? Can I get, and I'll never forget, I, I, I should have grown more as a result of it. But I'll never forget the time when my wife asked me to run into town to get something. And I, of course, grabbed the keys, you know, dropped whatever I was, anything I was doing and, and ran and realized my, I'm gritting my teeth. 
I'm not doing this. And I came back in and she knew I had been working on some stuff. And I said, you know what? I could go do that. And I know I just said, yes, but I, I, I would feel a little bitter about it. I'm not in a good place. And she wasn't this way. She, she did not react like this. She react great, reacted graciously. But in my own story, it was kind of like, Oh, I'm so happy for you. You're growing up, honey. It's a big boy move is, is kind of how it felt. Cause she knows that that's my propensity. And yet mm-hmm. still, I don't think I, I still had it. I, I have still struggled with having it attached to myself identity. So, you know, now we're into the knowledge and now into the practice of how do I walk this out, which is much of what your book is about, uh, being a boundary boss is okay. Now let's start practicing it and walking it out. But But. before we do that, we're going to introspect, we're going to self-reflect, we're going to look in because here's the thing, you have a downloaded boundary blueprint, just like I have a downloaded boundary blueprint which is unique to your life experience, the country you grew up in, the culture, the family system, what number you were in the birth order, like all of these things come together. And then then the societal and social norms that you grew up in. So being, yeah. you know, religious in the South, I mean, all, all of this stuff, you know, when we don't question it, the, this unconscious paradigm exactly the paradigm shift you were talking about before that needs to happen. This paradigm is unconscious. So, so much of the beginning work of the book and what I teach is that we got to go into the basement of your mind and go, why am I this way? Do I have to acquiesce to everything someone wants me to do? Am I confusing compatibility with compliance right? Because they're two different things. And if you're someone who doesn't like conflict, a lot of times we'll just comply with what other people want to avoid the conflict or to avoid being rejected or to avoid whatever it is we're afraid of. So the going in happens before the going out. Because I could have just written a book with boundary scripts, right? If If this were the case, if we didn't need to go in, I could have just been like, Just say this in this situation. Here you go, go. But I didn't because that doesn't work. If we don't understand why we are the way we are, sustainable change will not happen. You can change for like a little. You can use a script here and there, but it's not the same because you need to understand why it's hard for you. Yeah. Like I needed to understand why was I that way? The more you understand, the more compassion you can have for yourself, the less judgment, and then the easier it gets to just one baby step at a time, change these things, one one little preference at a time. And I want to look at boundaries from the point of view of what they are, what I say they are, which is your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers. Yeah. And they're your own personal rules of engagement that let other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. And when you're the way you are and the way that I was, we're way more focused out than focused in. We're like, how do I control this situation? We can see, oh, there's a conflict about to happen over there between those two people. (laughs) I'm going to find a way to slither over there and get in between and see if anyone wants something to drink or whatever. Like there's so much bandwidth going out when you have these types of disordered boundaries that it's exhausting. It's hard to know what your own preferences are, you know? Yes, I do. In your book, I, I got to 
hand it to you, Terry, is I, I love the lists. I, I have those marked time after time after time. I got them in my notes here. Oh, uh, the back to use. Well, just, just so yeah, well, yeah, that and others. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's the back to use. Thank you. The back to you. So yeah. you, you write, so yeah, for folks listening in the book, she writes, here's the concept. Here's the story. Here's the concept. Here's the point. And then back to you and asking those questions. It was a brilliant and just so helpful. And I have them listed out and I went around and circled them and made notes. Like you just mentioned the boundary blueprint list, which is on page 76. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and I went along and you had three kind of points there. One of them didn't relate. I felt like I was okay there. And then the next one, were you allowed or encouraged to express your ideas and feelings, comma, especially if they were different from other members of your family? Well, I was encouraged to share my feelings that aligned with my family. Now, there's a very good chance my mom and dad are going to listen to this. So mom and dad with grace, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Did you not allow it? Did they not allow it? Or did I just tune in to as, as kind of an empath type of aspect of what will get me affirmation and approval? I know what they yeah. believe. So I'm going to share with you from a bias of aligning with you because I want your yeah. affirmation and approval. I think I just took that and I embraced it hook, line and sinker. On my own. I don't know that they asked me to. I don't know that they forced me to, but I did that. And the next one you have, their next bullet point, when there was a conflict, did members calmly talk issues out or did they scream at each other or not talk at all? And I think my parents were so awesome in trying to make a positive you know, outlook that we didn't focus on the negatives much. So again, I just tuned into that. Negatives didn't seem to bring a lot of joy and they might be conflict and I don't want that. So I'm not going to talk about that. So I went the other way again. Yeah. So yeah, these lists, I feel like, I, I mean, of course I'm here recommending you or you wouldn't be on the show. In the book, I am recommending because I've been working through it, but just to go through the lists themselves at the end of each chapter and do an audit to become aware of what you're doing and what you're not is uh, worth the price of admission, as they would say. I tell everybody, go buy the book just to do the list, or you should just make the list and do a thousand dollar course if you haven't already done it. Well, you said you're working on a workbook right now, aren't you? Yep. Okay. But what you're saying though is so, is so true though. And, and here's the thing with healing these things and figuring these things out. We all make the generous assumption that our folks did the best they could with what they had to work with. So it's not by us getting it together is not blaming them. Right. But we have to be honest about what, what were the conditions? At least I look at in my family of origin, in the book, I talk about certain things called forbidden emotions, where I grew up in a house where anger was a forbidden emotion. So I did not learn how to be angry. Now, can you imagine how that would mess up my boundaries, my ability to confront people, to have conversations, to say no to something if I wasn't allowed to be angry? So what you do is it isn't like I have the power to make anger go away. I would turn it into something else. It would turn into depression, sadness. It was okay to cry. So I could be upset. I just couldn't be angry. So that took years in therapy to figure out. But those are the types of things that we figure out about ourselves, which make this process of shifting the way that we relate to boundaries so much easier. And having compassion for, like, there's nothing to feel bad about. If you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I'm a super boundary disaster, you're not. Wherever you are, you're in the exact right place right now to change, to pivot. It's not too late. 
No matter what you've done, I promise you, I can walk you through it one step at a time. I've helped zillions of people do this. But on the other side of this is much deeper relationships. On the other side of this is joy and a certain amount of relaxation that when you're hypervigilant, you don't have that kind of relaxation because there's always someone or something to be helping, fixing, serving, blah, blah, blah. And that's also not your job. And once we get that we're robbing other people of their sovereignty, even though we're doing it with a loving heart, that made it much easier for me to change. When I was like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. Right? Who am I to think that I know what every one of my sisters and my mother and all the people in the world should be doing? Let me just, how about keep my eyes on my own paper? What would change in my life if I did that? Okay, you just hit on, you talk about the aspect of, you know, we as a culture are, we're doers. We're doers. We're not beers. And one of the more convicting perspectives that I heard as a thread, and I even heard you talking about it, or I, I felt it there as you talked, mm -hmm. a thread through your book. As I'm looking at the doing, because that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. Most of my boundaries are, are doing things that I'm doing and mm -hmm. I'm overdoing. I'm taking responsibility, whatever. And then what my, what everyone associated with me is getting then is burned out, worn out, bitter, exhausted, unfulfilled, whatever, Kevin, as opposed to that, that's what helps me come over. If I put that mantle on help to come over and go, no, I do have to tend to myself first, because at the end of the day, what the kids, what my family wants most is just a joyful dad, not yeah. the overburden, not the, uh, you know, like my partner said one time, so you're showing your kids that being an entrepreneur is this hectic, chaotic mess of a life. That doesn't probably seem attractive. Well, <laughs> Right. And it's what I want from my, if I look at my wife specifically, what do I want from her or even business partners? You know, what do I want from them? I don't want them all bound up and wound up and I, I want them happy. It makes me happy. And so I'd be just as prone to go, guys, just don't do anything for me. Just be, just take care of yourself. Go do whatever you need to do and, and come back. Cause I'd rather have you joyful. And how do we not yes. take that on? I have missed that for myself. And, and it's, we're kind of back to the language that you said, learning a different mm -hmm. language. If I'm over in Germany with my little app to help me figure out how to say, and I'm sitting there, so I'm aware of every single word, so I got to figure out how to translate it. That's the work then that I feel like we've got to do mm -hmm. on this side with the boundaries to go, okay. And it'd be like constant awareness. Like I need a little avatar around yeah. half me go, whoa, 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 don't react. Stop. Yep. What's going yep. on? But do you, but do you meditate? Do you do, do you have mindfulness practices? Yes. I'm not going to say they're perfect, but yeah, I'm, I'm making more of an effort to do that. I would say get really committed to at least once a day, 10 to 20 minutes of even if it's guided meditation, I've got a million guided meditations on Inside Timer that are free. I mean, there's, they're, they're, it's so easy to do it now because I have to say, I this has always been a core foundation. I've been teaching meditation for many years for my therapy clients because what happens is when you gain, when you actually have a daily practice, in my experience, I gained about two to three seconds of response time. Wow. That's all I needed to make a different mm. choice and not be in constant react 
mode, react, react, react. I, cause I could never do it before I meditated consistently. It was always after the fact where I was like, Oh God, why did I hit send on that email? Or why did I say that thing? Or why? Like I was a little bit of a hothead, I would say. And I was, I could get so ego jacked up in like two seconds flat. Once I started meditating, I was like, nah, I don't want to live like that. I'm not, I'm going to pause. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to buy myself time. This is part of the whole thing that I teach you in the book and in my courses. Like you don't owe anyone an insta yes about anything. You teach people how quickly you're going to get back to them. You teach people how to treat you. That if I ask you, you should say immediately yes, because they're used to you doing that, let's just say. But you don't owe that to anybody. And so part of it is, this process of becoming masterful of boundaries means that you're going to teach people something different. That you're going to start learning language to say, hey, I have a 24-hour decision-making policy. I'll let you know tomorrow. Or I don't, I'm, you know, I need to check with my partner or check with my calendar. Or I don't know if I have the bandwidth to help you with that project. I will go take a look at the data and get back to you in two days. Buy time for yourself because it's so much easier to say no if you haven't already given an Insta yes. Well, then Terry, I mean, you're, call, you're somewhat calling to the mat then our own expectations of others that I'm then relating to myself. Because if I contact you about something, my personal desire is to get an immediate response. Yep. Uh, it's just what I want. I, I'm, I've, patience is not my strongest gifting. And I would like to have that response. Now, so I'm going to flip that around then. And when you contact me, I feel responsible to mm-hmm. respond immediately because that's my own vernacular. So you're call- so for me to do what you're talking about, I've got I got to call in my own expectations and do some auditing. Right. But you're you're what you're really talking about though, Kevin is is respecting the boundaries of others. Yeah. And when you haven't respected your own, and when you've sort of trampled over others, here when you don't say no, when you want to say no, and then other people have the gall to say no, wow, that really pisses you off as a people pleaser. Absolutely. As an overfunctioner, as an overgiver, you're like, you're kidding, right? After everything I've done for you, hello? Like, that's what comes into mind. Because with this overgiving train, it's just, there's only, only one stop on that train. And it's just bitter land. That's it. We end up bitter. We say we're not going to. So many, you know, we see the stereotypical quote unquote, like mothers that are like, you know, martyrs, basically. You don't think that when that mother was 21, she was like, well, I can't wait to grow up and be a martyr and torture my family. Of course not. (laughs) That is not her desire. But if we overgive, especially when people are not asking us to, we will feel used, abused, taken advantage of, even though we can't even see ourselves that we're serving ourselves up. We're doing it. A lot of times people are not even asking. And I would be like jumping in and overgiving and then being like, I can't believe Betty's not going to do that for me after everything I've done for her. Mm-hmm. Well, who asked you to do all that shit for Betty, Terry? Nobody, but you did it. And now there's an expectation. You feel like Betty's on the hook for it, but she's not. So it disordered boundaries really gets in the way of our relationships. Okay. You, you just brought me back to the idea of control again. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna go back to my childhood. 
So I think my prime, a primary method or desire of mine as a kid was to have my parents approval. And I figured out how to Mm -hmm. get that. And I wrapped myself around that and I would perform. Uh, I was an only child for the first, my, my next, my sibling, next sibling is seven years younger and then 10 years younger. So I was, I still primarily lived the life of an only child, but my brother was kind of at the end of my, Mm -hmm. my before, you know, not close to, to leaving or close to leaving the house. And my brother's older and I figured out how to play my parents for Mm -hmm. my, for my own benefit. So back to control And I would use mm-hmm. the word again, I'm going to say it with grace, but, but you're helping me see it was, it was a way of manipulating things to get my way. So I would, meanwhile, my brother, yeah. would, he, he could care less. He was just going to be him. He's just him. And right. if it sent the parents off to a tizzy, you know, whatever he did. But I remember thinking that like, are you, are you stupid? You're pushing all the wrong buttons. You're not going to get anything you want. That was my feeling back then. But what you showcase here is that was, and now I've taken that into life to figure out how to. If I put it in that way, it sounds really bad how to play people and I'm going to serve and give winner because I want them happy. I want them to think well of me because why? Because I want, and I'm back to feeling selfish. And if we look at that and go, man, all these efforts to over be overly responsible and take care of everybody, it sounds so altruistic. And we think of it that way. Trust me, I'm with you. <laughs> and it's not, it's, a, it's, and you're helping see that it's, and I know, and you don't do this in the book. I'm pulling this out with my mm-hmm. own flavor and maybe irritation at myself and whatever, because your, your book, you don't, I, I want everybody to hear that you're, you're much more gracious when I'm speaking it right now, but to look at it and go, man, that's a, that's a big aspect of, we said arrogance before and control and manipulation to get what you want. Well, that puts a whole different spin on it. Yes, and. And. So to be a therapist, let's look at the flip side. Please. Of course, you want to get your needs met. And if you had a brother who was acting out, who was the probably the scapegoat of the family, because that's, we all have them. Yeah. Um, that was what his need was. His need isn't your need. Your need was approval and to stay in the good graces and to probably be the hero child. He had a different need. So differentiating from the group. And it's painful because here's the thing with the roles that we play in our families of origin, you don't pick them. The, the system itself yeah. picks the roles. So weird. Nobody told me you're the hero child. I just knew it. Do good in school. Do these things. These, the, this sister's acting out. So to, she's the identified patient. She's the scapegoat. I mean, we're just doing what we can to get our needs met to the best of our ability. Nobody, like, there's no handbook of how to like do it. You know what I mean? We're just doing the best that we can. So part of it is understanding that that was adaptive for you. in childhood, because it probably did get your needs met. Many of those things become maladaptive in our adult relationships. Yeah. Yes, they have. Um, (laughs) I'm working working on it. You you know, when you mentioned a minute ago, Terry, meditation and gaining one or two seconds to Mm -hmm. give you the opportunity to be self-aware, to respond instead of react. The other thing that hit me again, from a big standpoint of looking at your book is how can I, how can someone, how can I have, I probably can't have good boundaries if I am emotionally 
unaware, if I'm emotionally unintelligent. One of my uh, therapists a couple years ago, or whenever it came out, gave me or had me get Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, uh, mm. to figure out that there's more emotions than one um, <laughs> that, I, that I was aware of. And I've known this for a while. I had one before give me a kind of a feelings dashboard type thing. But I feel as I was, again, reading the book, I thought I, to do this well, to know the boundaries well, to know myself, to know, uh, you mentioned, what were the three things, your, um, your preferences, your desires, desires and your, limits and deal breakers and deal breakers to know those though, I've got to be self-aware and understand what I'm feeling, why X, Y, Z doesn't feel good. If I don't know that, if I don't know why it, it feels good and what the issue is. How can I create a boundary for it? Is that fair? Yes. So, so what I do, because a lot of times people, that's the biggest overwhelm people have is to go, I don't even know what my boundaries are. I'm like, but you do, don't worry. So we start with doing the okay and not okay list where we just go through every aspect of life, family relationships, work, health and fitness, finances, all the things. And we kind of write down like, what is working for you? What isn't? What's okay? What's not? So we start with these lists where we're like, okay, some things need to change. But another place that I think is helpful for anybody listening who's like, I don't know where I need boundaries. I'm going to ask you to quickly do um, a resentment inventory. Oh, okay. Because this will show you. Yeah, it's not not hard. We're, We're just thinking about right now. If you think about what are you feeling? any resentment about who's the relationship with and what's it about. We can start to, we can use this little list as a GPS to go, Hmm, this is probably because wherever we feel resentment in a relationship is probably where a boundary is needed or a boundary is being crossed. Either way, we know a need is going unmet if you're feeling resentful. So that can help to be like, okay, Oh, look, my top three resentments are all with the same person. Then you're like, oh, this relationship I need better boundaries with. Yeah. At, tell me about this is what. So after I read or you know started thinking about emotions and read the piece on, it's interesting. You said that your next book is on high the HFC high functioning codependent, which you said you touched on a little bit. That's interesting because if I was to tell somebody about your book, that's the high. That's one of the highlights uh, mm. for me that I went into well (laughs) so uh, can i have your first galley copy of the new (laughs) book the high functioning codependent but what it got me thinking of was the aspect of self-worth what is it in what has it been in me what is it in me that so needs to appease other people. Why am I not? And I actually, Terry, it was interesting. I, my first thought, and I wrote it down here was, was confidence. I need to be more confident. But I thought, that's not it. I, I have a lot of confidence in my ability, mm-hmm. what I can do, even what I, what I think, but maybe not in regards to how I feel if I'm unaware of that. And then we get into self-worth, which is play with that with me. Thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, let's first talk about self-knowledge. When, when you're someone who is masterful at things, as you are, it can be very challenging to go into an area or a realm where you're not masterful. Sure. Like there's a part of our mind that just wants to avoid the crap either we don't understand or we're like, oh, this seems heavy and overwhelming and I don't get it. And do I have to blame people and blah, 
whatever, it's fine. Whatever I'm doing is fine. So part of it is looking at the the truth about if you're not masterful at something, it can bring up a lot of resistance to doing anything about it, to understanding. The way that you, I walk you through it in the book is making it so personal to you so that you can look at, hmm, what is it about? Why is it threatening? And so I would say there's a couple of things that I think that we can use. Um, and yes, we'll get, we'll wrap it back around to the self-worth. But when you're in a situation and we can talk about your situation, feeling compelled to overfunction or overgive or fix. If you were to, I created this little strategy. It's just the three cues for clarity, meaning the three questions for clarity to ask. So when you're there, think of the last time you felt that way, let's say you would ask yourself, right now, who does this person remind me of? Hmm. Where have I felt like this before? Is the second question. And how is this behavioral dynamic familiar to me? This person has a problem. I want to fix their problem, right? How is that behavioral dynamic familiar to me? And you might even ask a clarifying question, which is metaphorically, who do I become? And who does that other person become? Are you do you become your 10-year-old self? Does that person become your your brother, a cousin, your parents, somebody? That can be helpful to go, what am I repeating? Right. What am I repeating? Because a lot of times, and this is something that you know Freud talks about, repetition compulsion is just like we repeat what we do not repair, you know? Hmm. That's harsh. Uh, but I Somebody I read in the past year was referencing a patient who was a therapist, a patient. Mm-hmm. And I'm to cut to the point of it, they ultimately said, so you're going to choose to act out this pain with your mother. That's more important than loving your wife. And mm-hmm. I, I, hear, I hear that in what you're talking about, that if we don't repair it. Right. But here's the thing about choice. Let's be really clear about when something is in the basement of your mind, it's in your unconscious mind. You don't have a choice. We're compelled. We don't know why, but we're compelled for good reasons. So I don't think it's a good, I don't feel like it's a blame thing. I think it's a, it's an evolution thing. It's a, do I want to understand why I am this way? Can I believe that being a different way will still be satisfying, that I can still love people without controlling them? I can still love people without, quote unquote, saving them. I can still be helpful in a healthy way without dominating, without having it be my need for control. Talking about, you know, what you and I have been talking about specifically, right? That's not everybody with boundary issues, but that's what we've been talking about. So that's where the choice comes in. Will I choose to learn to be an expert on myself emotionally and psychologically? Will I get radically curious about why I am the way I am and then do what I need to shift my relationships into healthier relationships? And here's the thing. If no one is complaining, though, Kevin, like, here's another thing I want to say. I feel this way about drinking. I feel this way about a lot of things where... Who am I to say you need to change anything? 
the only thing you need to change is what isn't working for you, yeah. right? The only thing you need to change is behavior that is getting in the way of your relationships being as good as they could be. But if you're happy, if you're like, you know what? My life is a 10 and you were overstepping boundaries left and right and everybody was fine with it. I'd be like, there's no need to change anything. Like who, who am I to say? But it's really the identifying the pain points because that's what we care about. What are the things that we're doing in our lives that are perpetuating a certain amount of pain or discomfort or resentment or exhaustion or whatever it is? Those are the things we need to change. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And I'm, okay. I'm going to, gosh, how can I, I'm going to try to be candid, but respectful that even, even honestly, as I look at my wife, I would say that there's things I put it both ways, things that we do that, that are, we'd say not, not working. Now she tends to be the one that she's going to, you know, pursue conflict. I'd say, you know, there, there's things that she would have to admit. Those are not working over here. I'm avoiding. That's what I tend yes. to do is, yep. is avoid. And I don't, I, I might look at it. What's not working. It would be that it's the avoiding, uh, the avoiding is not working. It's my effort to, uh, well, actually I, that was my next point here is it's actually page 14 of your book. And you talk, the statement that I pulled out was, you said the fear, uh, I'm paraphrasing when the fear of disappointing others gets in the way of basic common sense that stuck out to me and tell me about back. Maybe this comes back to a self-worth issue too, of for those who have such a significant hang up with disappointing others. That's probably a primary, uh, somebody asked me this recently and I realized that it was, no, it was my therapist. And one of my, pri I do not want to let people down. I do not want to let the top of the list. I do not want to let people down. I want them to feel cared for. So to disappoint someone to mm -hmm. proactively, consciously say no, have a boundary mm -hmm. that might disappoint somebody. Mm -hmm. And I've questioned why is that such a big deal to me? Because if I look at that again in the most intimate relationships that I have, you know, if my mm -hmm. wife, my kids, if I do that, are they going to abandon me? No, mm -hmm. they've proven that because I have disappointed them plenty of time, mm -hmm. even my effort not to. So it's not that I can't look at that and go, well, see, every time I do, I get left, I get abandoned. That that, that did not happen, right? But there is a reason okay. you are this way, right? There is a childhood experience. That made, because what we experience in childhood feels very life and death, you know, because we're little kids and because like you can't just like go hitch a ride somewhere and get a, a, your own house, <laughs> like you are captive audience. And so the fear doesn't have to be anything extreme, right? Like we, we come to our neuroses like very, very naturally and normally, even if your family system was great, right? And looked great. This, it has to do with nature and nurture, right? Who you were as a kid, who I was as a kid, and then how we interacted with our environment and how healthy or unhealthy the environment was. Um, can I, can but, I, I want to ask though, you yeah. said the, the experience. I want to, I want to hone in on that because something just occurred to me. Mm -hmm. You're going to say, cause you're going to say, oh, something, you know, there's an experience in your childhood, which a lot of people, including me, are going to look at and you know this, are going to look back at and go, well, th there wasn't, there wasn't some horrific experience. So let me play that out. If I go back and go, okay, I was going to people, please, I was going to please uh, my dad. 
Okay. I'm going to pick on you. I'm going to pick on you, dad, when you listen to this. Okay. Uh, because it's true. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to say what I think he wants to hear and I'm going to appeal to him and appease him. And if I don't, what happened? If I didn't, what happened? And I would say, I think because of fear is, oh, I, I lose relationship. I lose his love. Yeah. Did that happen? No. Did, did he ever, to, but I wrote, but what can we say? Did, did I experience that happening or did I write a story of what might happen? And that's my experience. Yes. Okay. Exactly. It's that, because here's the thing. It doesn't have to, my whole point is it doesn't have to be a big catastrophic thing to have a lasting impact on children. And again, we're not, it's not even about the parents. It's about, we're way grown up, right? We're way grown up. It's, it's our job to go, huh? I am like this. I would like to change this, the way that I'm interacting with people. Mm -hmm. I would like to do less and be more. I would like to relate to people in a more equal way rather than in a controlling way. I would like whatever it is that you would like. And then we slowly but surely put into place what would need to change. And you do this by one healthy boundary or boundary request at a time. Right. It's like you're not you're relating to others like they're your dad and you're like a six year old. Right. But what we remind ourselves is that they're not your dad and you're not six. I had this experience with transference and I think it would could be helpful. I had a boss at my internship when I was becoming a therapist and I really couldn't stand this guy. And I'd go into therapy and I'd be like, oh, Dr. Washington, he's such a jerk. He's so cold. He's so judgmental. He's so mean. I mean, literally, my therapist was like, have you even interacted with this guy? But I would like three weeks in a row, I came in complaining about how cold and rejecting he was. Hmm. And then she was like, okay, by week four, she was like, uh, let's talk about this. Can you describe him again? So I describe him. Brooks, brother suit wearing, Wall Street Journal reading, martini drinking, probably freaking golfs on the weekend. This was my description. Six two, dimples, great looking, deep voice. She was like. Hello. Who else would you describe exactly like that? I was like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing. My father. Wow. Every single thing to a T. And I grew up very afraid of my father yeah. and felt very judged and rejected and all the things that I was putting on to this poor dude who I didn't even barely know. And my therapist said, you know, Terry, do you know what's happening? And I was like, uh, no. And she's like, you're having a transference, right? You're transferring. Like literally, do you know what happened? Dr. Washington became your father. You became 10 year old you. So you just avoided him. Like he would come down the hallway. I would jump into the bathroom to like not pass him. If he was in a meeting, I wouldn't even talk at all. And she was like, here's what's dysfunctional about this. First of all, he's not your father and you're not 10. So we'll start there. But also if, cause I was so shocked that I couldn't, I didn't see that myself. It was so obvious when she said it, I was like, oh my God. Wow. She was like, but Tara, if you didn't realize it, don't you want to get a job at this place after you graduate? Like you would never let this guy see how smart you are yeah. because you're too busy acting out this unresolved injury from, from childhood or whatever. So is there more we need to talk about with your father and whatever? I mean, we, we, I guess there was more to talk about, but from that moment, that realization, I never felt afraid of that guy again. Actually, I did get a job at that place after I graduated grad school. But that's something that if my therapist hadn't pointed it out to me, I might have just continued on. And I wouldn't describe my childhood 
as abusive. Yeah. I wouldn't describe it as overtly anything, you know, but that was still deep in there. So knowing ourselves is very helpful. That feels like the point that I'm not going to say I was never exposed to it, but it didn't, I didn't attach that yet to boundaries. So we hear about the aspect of boundaries, you explain it and it sounds it sounds reasonable. It sounds, you know, necessary mm-hmm. to have boundaries. Of course we got to have boundaries. We can't just, you know, mm-hmm. give everything away, but without the self-awareness, without understanding it, which again, if I go back to your list, which I just, you know, I, you know, the page 32, you have the boundary list, page 53, the high functioning codependent list, uh, page mm-hmm. 59, Holy smokes, the perfectionist list. And as I looked at that and, you know, maybe I'm, I'm way over on the spectrum, but I think that everyone reading that, that's why I would write that. Well, that's why you're here. I want people to go through and audit themselves and understand and go, Oh, Oh, just like you. Oh, I'm transferring this dude onto my dad. You're totally unaware. And how many of us are, are, are here? And we're just, we get the concept of boundaries, but we're unaware of ourselves and where we're going. And that's where I've been. I just have had a hard time attaching myself and going through literally uh, the list here. I just, yeah, I started marking them off and it helps my it almost has me thinking about, you know, you've got, you're, you're helping us, not just with the, the concept of boundaries, but the psychology behind it. I yes. will, our psychology behind it. Maybe that's it. Not the psychology so much even as our psychology. And if I go in and understand my own propensity for this, then I can actually hit the root issue as opposed to otherwise, otherwise, I hadn't thought about that, Terry. Otherwise, doing the boundary, just trying to do it, say no, or whatever, feels kind of like, mm-hmm. it feels like a Band-Aid. It feels... It feels kind of artificial and I can't own it. And you won't be able to keep doing it is the point. Because if the original injuries are never addressed, you will eventually go back to that other behavior because it's serving you in some way. So I told you the story about Dr. Washington because this is other people. You You can identify where you might be having a transference in your own life by just asking those simple questions. Who does this person remind me of? If I had asked that one question, I would have decoded that myself without my therapist. He reminded me so much of my father. Where have I felt like this before? And how is this behavioral dynamic familiar to me? And why is that helpful to know? Because sometimes our boundaries are disordered in adulthood because of unresolved crap from childhood that this little strategy these three questions for clarity can help you. So we can put them in the show notes too. Well, and you brought up, and I know that that's a part, that's a a significant part of the book is, or of a section of the book is looking at what we're doing and realizing that we are, uh, it's actually chapter four uh, in the boundary blueprint area, the secondary Mm -hmm. gain. The secondary gain is the unobvious gain we receive by staying stuck in unhealthy patterns of behavior. And to look at that and realize I'm getting something out of it. I'm not in jail. I'm not being forced at gunpoint to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this thing. I'm missing the primary gain that I could have by, by having a boundary and addressing this unsustainable, back to what you said, what is not working? If you look at every relationship and say, what is not working? Where am I? And for me, I tend to think, what's not sustainable if I'm going to have a healthy relationship? You know, I'm, I'm enduring this, but what is not okay? And then 
and, and there's a primary gain I could have right now. I'm stuck in the secondary gain. I am getting something out of it by avoiding. Yeah. I am getting something by not, by not having a boundary and fixing it. I am getting something. I'm still self-serving. Yes. And so asking the question, cause this, you can use the secondary gain tool that I put in the book for any, any place where you see yourself stuck in life, any behavior that you go, you know what? I, I'm not, I don't want to do this anymore but you keep doing it. Yeah. There is an unobvious gain. You're being protected in some way. So the questions you ask is what do I get to not face, not feel, or not experience by continuing to engage in this behavior or by staying stuck here yeah. is an easier way of saying it. So if we look at over-functioning, let's say, or over-giving or whatever, what do you get to not face, not feel, not experience by continuing to do it? you're, I'm going to land us here. I, I, I feel like you're going back to meditation and your statement of getting a second or two of, of pause before that reaction that the line, I pulled this out and this is somewhere in chapter four, I think. And you said, am I get for me to quit? So this is what I want to embrace. I, maybe this is the tattoo that I'll get finally, uh, okay. is am I giving from a place of love or a place of fear or need. How does this feel? So somebody's asking, or, or there's something I think I should do. There's an expectation to fill. There's something to do. Am I doing it? Do I really feel a desire to do it? Like, yeah, I really want to do that. I want to help with that. Or am I doing it out of a fear or a need? And I think a lot of mine, I think I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to play with that with each, with each thing. But I think a lot, I think some fear, but a lot of it's just need. I need to fulfill my self-identity. I need to fill that thing that tells me that I approve of myself because I did X, 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 I did more and I'm feeding this mm -hmm. thing because without it. And then I'm back to self-worth, I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you are, your value yeah. is not what you do. Your value is who you are. And I think that that is a, that's hard when you're a doer and when you're productive and when you're kind of a type A or, and I think you probably are, I definitely am, that the whole productivity thing and what did I, you know, my husband and I do our gratitudes at night. Every night we say like, what are we grateful for? What are we excited about? And what are we proud of? Which is hard. Because, you know, we all come from the school of thought of being like, it has to be amazing to be proud of something. Yeah. So when you're in the gratitudes, I said to him, listen, we have to stop. <laughs> our productivity cannot be our only gratitude. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm grateful that I got that done. I'm grateful that I did this. I was like, our life cannot be about what we're producing only. It's got to be about all the other stuff, too. And he was like, you're right. That would be the exercise for me. As, at the end of the day, what am I proud of that I had been, not that I... Mm -hmm did okay yeah. well um if we can just do this every week terry we'll <laughs> be cured in no we'll time do a live, we'll do a live podcast every week of kevin working through his boundary issues uh seriously it's so good i have the book so marked up i've got the cover behind me there and it's torn up i need i'm gonna have to get another one um <laughs> but i I've, i mean i've been obviously i'm, I'm working in this but this is going to take this is going to be a while this is a, a mm -hmm. primary thing for me thank you so much for for being here i'm eager to talk uh more about this but uh it's such a gift so needed i need it i know so many others do as well so thank you for being here to impart it to me and to my audience terry <laughs>
Thanks for having me, Kev. I appreciate you. Terry Cole's book again is Boundary Boss, The Essential Guide to Talk True, Be Seen, and Finally Live Free. And her popular podcast is The Terry Cole Show. Friends, thank you for tuning into Self Helpful, where I curate the sea of new personal development materials and help you integrate wisdom into your life because we all want to elevate our own experience and improve the way we show up for others. 